They say patience is a virtue But I can wait as long as you do for a change Call me insane but that's my end Hey everyone, um, welcome to uh, the sixth episode of Untelevised, the podcast. Um, if you've stayed with us so far, thank you so much and welcome back. And if you've only just joined us, then there is uh, five other episodes <laughs> for you to listen to. Um, so yeah, how are you doing, Fazeo, this week? Yeah, I'm good. You know what? I feel like I'm really getting into the swing of things now. It feels natural to sit and talk to a mic for an hour or so every every other week. Um, and I was just saying to you, I really, really, I mean, tooting out my own horn, I guess, but I really enjoyed last week's episode. It just felt the most journeyish for me, and that's really what I'm hoping to get from this podcast is to learn from other people's journeys. So. Yeah, yeah. It was it. I, I. It was a nice one, and I feel like already had we had some quite nice um, responses to it, and especially as a topic that we had been meaning to cover like for weeks and weeks and weeks. But I feel like we held out and just did it properly. You know, didn't didn't rush in, didn't rush in with it. No, yeah, I definitely. Uh, we have had some great messages, and I hope more people can continue to resonate with it. So this week, um, the the topic is grassroots, and um, we kind of feel that this word is is like our raison d'être, like a kind of like keeps uh, coming up, keeps it? coming up. We probably have bored you with it, but ho- hopefully there is still stuff to learn. We did define grassroots in our first ever episode on on uprisings, but for anyone who didn't hear that um we you we sort of define grassroots as something that is grown you know as you might imagine literally kind of from the ground up as opposed to sort of from the top down so it's not instructed it doesn't come from our governments or our systems or from any hierarchies it's literally something that's developed by the people themselves that are involved and it's feeling something or involved in something so i think the dictionary definition again literally says something like the ordinary people in a in an organization or in a movement or something I, I believe <laughs> um and you'll hear some more definitions of the word from from our guests as well coming up um we contrast grassroots um usually to again something a bit more like institutions or statutory services which we defined in our systems episode so you can go listen to that one if you want a bit more context but statutory services being the kind of um the social activities or the services in our society that are put on and organized by our governments our local or central governments and funded by by them as well I think what's interesting actually when looking at the definition of grassroots is to look at the charity sector because I think that's an area that people can often get really confused about because on paper they might seem like they're doing very similar things but they're operating in very different ways so um, in my mind a charity or an NGO might be a lot more formal and structured so in essence like a profitable business but just with a charitable cause whereas a grassroots organization tends to be very organic and very fluid um 
often just a group of people that have come together to tackle something. So they might not have an office or a HR team or um, uh, policies to protect. Exactly, all of these things that um, charities often do have. Charities are often massive organisations. It's just that their purpose is not to make a profit, but to um, work towards a certain cause. Um, Whereas, as Mona said, a grassroots organisation is very much more organic. People have come together to do something um, not necessarily with all the resource of a charity. So um, the charity often gets called the third sector. And I'm going to say we coined <laughs> the grassroots sector as the fourth sector. We probably didn't coin it, but we're going we're gonna to take gonna that say one, that. right? You heard it here. It's copyrighted. Fourth sector. Watch this space. <laughs> because literally the grassroots is a whole other sector on its own, um, despite them all being lumped into the same sort of grouping. This week, actually, our first guest, I think, just embodies grassroots. Like, if the dictionary was pictures, his picture would be what came (laughs) next to the word grassroots. Because Ian, which is his name, is actually the founder of May Project Gardens, which is the organisation that Mona now co-directs. And May Project Gardens grew out of Ian's mother's council home back garden so it literally was an organic process his mother passed away sadly from mental illness and wanting to give a legacy to her and what she was about he looked around him saw that there was a large garden that was left in her home and turned it into a community space Um, he found a lot of healing in that garden and he opened it up to the community so that they could also come and find healing in that place. Since then, it's grown exponentially to an organisation that advocates for all sorts of people on the margins, including refugees, like Mona spoke about a lot in the Meet Mona episode. And it's a place for personal, social and economic transformation. That's their uh, tagline. But I'll let Ian tell you a lot more about his story, where he started and what they now do. What makes us quite unique is one, the demographic, it's one of the few organisations that's black-led in an environmental sector. But not only that, it runs out of my home. So in terms of grassroots, <laughs> you can't really get much more grassroots. With the addition is that it's called May Project Gardens, which deals with nature. So in terms of grassroots, you know, <laughs> we, we embody that in every single aspect of what we do. So I think the reason why you've brought me to talk is because I, I, I compliment um, all the existing speakers that um, have been on previously. And I think I offer quite a unique um, perspective, but a complementary perspective on how the grassroots movement should work or how it should be in terms of what the work I do as well. Yeah, I mean, the grassroots is something that we've spoken about from episode one. Uh, it's It's continuously coming up in all of our different conversations about social change. So it seems to be quite a crucial element of that journey or that fight for social change. How would you define it though? Because we find that everyone defines it slightly differently. Um, I don't think you can define it in words. You can only define it by the actions, uh, by the the impact. Um, And I don't mean impact in terms of um, impact measurement, but there's many. <laughs> it, it, it's, a, it's a challenging one because there's many things that we've we use the word transformation. I think that if we framed our work around my work or the work around transformation, then I'm hugely successful. 
And what I mean by that is the fact that, you know, one, for example, um, you know, Maplewood Gardens had no funding for nine years. It was completely self-funded. Um, and I was working part-time to keep that afloat. Um, so that in itself, in terms of the, the economic situation is success. And a lot of the work of the grassroots is difficult to measure because it's behind the scenes. It's the, it's the cement of society. And until it's removed, people don't know it's there. Um, so that's why it's quite difficult to kind of quantify it in that sense. You've said so much, Ian, I don't even know where to start with my next question, but I think <laughs> I want to start with the last thing you just said, which is that people don't know it's there. One of the interesting things I find, and even in my work have found, is that very much when you're working outside of the system or outside of the infrastructure, you might identify everything as just charity or the third sector, but actually within that whole wide framework, there's so many different levels of what's going on. So people might not, for example, distinguish May Project Gardens from um, a more formal charity like Greenpeace or something like that. They might not see how there's a difference there. What is the difference, would you say, in terms of like a more grassroots organisation and a, some of the bigger, more maybe resourced NGOs and charities? Um, I think it's about, there's, there's many different layers to it and you can stop me when you get bored. <laughs> um, so I think the first is the, the location and how it's set up. I think, you know, that's really crucial. Um, May Project Gardens was never set up to be a charity. It was set up by someone's passion and off of the back of that passion, it then became um, uh, um uh, a, a, a CIC, which it is presently as well, and it's become formalized. So that's the first one I say, the way it's set up. Um, because very often the charities um, or just society, generally speaking, was always concerned about the impact or the quantifiable measurement. So we're going to achieve this much impact by this amount of time. But there's so much things that happen on the journey, not just as an organization, but for me personally, that gets neglected. And so all of these things, all of these kind of challenges, hardships, um, inform how the project and how I work. Um, and so it's really important that the way in which it's set up is, is crucial. Um, when people ask me, oh, I wanna set up a charity, I was like, why do you wanna set up a charity? Why don't you just keep doing the work you're doing till actually it becomes a need for you to set up a charity as opposed to setting up a charity straight away. Um, the need for formalization, um, I really understand it, but a lot of grassroots organizations are not even formalized and they do magnificent work, but they're not because they're not formalized, they're not recognized. So I think there's that. I think um, there's definitely, um, um, a sense of power and privilege that exists in a lot of charitable sectors. And what I mean by that, um, the, particularly in the environmental sector, most of the people, the, the staffing that inhibits that space tend to be predominantly white, middle class. And in the UK, obviously it makes sense as a demographic, um, but yet it doesn't, if I look at the comparison between, for example, the staffing and our food system, our food system is very diverse. You've got people like Jamie Oliver making a farce out of cooking jollof rice, do you know what I mean? Or jerk chicken, do you know what I mean? Like, you know, but yet there's an there. understanding of 
yeah, I'll, I'm just, I'm just kind of touching it. Do you know what I mean? I'm just touching it. <laughs> um, but yeah, although there is a definitely a cultural appropriation of that food, um, the other side of it is that there is an awareness of that that culinary food, you know, like if you look at all the food in the UK, you know, everyone knows about Oriental food, everyone knows about African food, everyone knows about Caribbean food, everyone knows about Iranian food, you know, food is globally. Um, but that is not reflected in the organizations. And um, what's been really revelationary to me, and I'm a bit of a spiral, I'm going on a bit of a tangent, but it will come back, is that um, I use this notion of biodiversity. And um, by doing May Project Gardens, I've really understood the importance, not just in terms of nature, but how do you, um, how do you frame that with regards to people? And if you don't have biodiverse people, it's not just about color, this is talking about women, you know, we have a lot of, you know, I am one of the few men in our organization, May Product Gardens. If we don't have diversity within the organization or in the entity or whatever it may be, you don't have resilience. And the reason why people are struggling, particularly large charities, is that because they have not had diversity, whether it's learning styles, whether it's different people from economic backgrounds, whether it's able-bodied people. And that's why now a lot of people are coming to May Project Gardens for solutions because we have that in abundance. Mm. And that's interesting actually, because one of the key things that I heard you say was you spoke of indirectly about collaboration and the idea of sort of sharing resources and sharing talents. How does it feed into resilience? Why does having diversity make make you more resilient or stronger? Well, again, I'll use the metaphor and I'm always gonna do this, so forgive me. Um, but, you know, if you look at, for example, a food system, so I, this is all stuff that I've learned by working in Maple Gardens or the garden itself or working in nature. And what you see is that if you have a biodiverse system, which means lots of different types of species, systems, people, techniques, whatever learning styles, um, it means, you're less likely to be um, threatened. Now, what I mean by that, if, for example, if we talk about a farm, for example, they tend to grow monocrops. Monocrops is one type of crop. Now, if a pest comes, a pest identifies that one crop and tells all its mates, hey, come, let's eat this crop, and it gets decimated. So if threats come, whatever they may be, financial, economic, like we're, we're like happening now, of example, like COVID lockdown, it means because you're all going the same way and doing the same things, you're not resilient, you're not flexible, you because you, you've got you've got your model working all in the same way. So it's unlikely to survive changes and threats. So this is why um, um, biodiversity is so important for resilience, such a crucial thing. I can't stress how vital it is for you know us as a society. And also us as people, we're such a diverse range of people such a diverse population. So as someone who's been doing this for a long time and has sort of been pioneering this sort of, this way of working, would you say that it's intentional? Did you go in with the intention? I, I think I know the answer because you've already alluded to the fact that it was quite organic, but did you go in sort of with the intention of always mean, being at the grassroots level? Or do you think it's more a matter of circumstance for most people? It was, it was more to do with the need, like, you know, there's definitely a need. Um, my background is that um, I was a care for my mum for many years and she was mentally ill. Um, and I just saw that 
in society, um, there is ultimately a lack of care um, for people who are the most vulnerable people in society. And I fit under that category as well, you know, for different reasons. I'll come to those later if we have time. Um, but ultimately, when you see that, you just kind of think, well, I don't think everyone has to think like that. But I think there is an emotive call to action. And the emotive call to action for me was actually, okay, well, look, what can I do to address inequality? What can I do to address the lack of community? What can I do to challenge systematic racism or systematic oppression? And I basically just went on a journey and, and just started it organically. So I think it's a bit of both. Um, I think it was never my intention, but I think what happened was what, what happened with May Project Gardens was that I was given a framework to get clarity about what I was doing. I think I always had the motivation before, um, and I always was prior to me doing May Project Gardens. I was an activist in the music scene. Um, I was also working in the third sector, but I think actually having uh, um, having a space that I could access. Um, it really allowed me to kind of make a lot of mistakes to learn the best way to do this. I think very often um, the need is obvious. You know, if we look at statistics in terms of inequality, we can go through the whole range of them from poverty to inequality, to food, to health, to, you know, um, unemployability, unemployment, you know, um, it, the list is endless actually I was then in a situation where almost like I had my own laboratory I had my own laboratory where I could actually go okay let me experiment and I think you know it's really important that as grassroots organizations we're we're given a space to do that and very often you're not given a space to do that to make mistakes and learn as you go along so um yeah Okay, so that sounds like maybe one of the challenges um, of working in this way that both a benefit and a challenge, I guess. So a benefit would be being able to be organic and to learn and grow in an organic nature. But you've just mentioned that it's challenging to do that within, within systems. Um, are there any other challenges? And if there are, who or what is to blame for them? Oh, man. Oh, wow. <laughs> wow. Um, I just think it's ultimately it comes down to if, if I'm if I'm the most, you know, succinct, it's a, it's a capitalist society. You know, everything is monetized. Um, and so, for example, if we look at, for example, if we look at where the jobs um, which do the most care, for example, we talk about nurses or jobs that are fundamental to the kind of the, the movement of society, bus people, bus drivers, you know, um, they're the least paid jobs. Um, so to me, once I kind of understand this framing, I'm like, there's something fundamentally wrong with society, that the people that care or do the most caring or kind of, you know, uh, almost like the bumblebee thing I talked about, you know, the, the cement, the kind of the pollination in society. You know, if you imagine, just imagine for a couple of days, imagine two weeks of not of the dust people not removing the trash or the rubbish, the litter, you know, um, L-I-T-T-E-R, you know, imagine what the world would look like. We see that in certain places already, but imagine just how our environments would look. But yet, how much are they paid? 
Like no one wants to do that work really. And also the way in which they're presented, they're presented as less valued in society. You know, no one aspires to be a dust person, a dustbin person. It's no knock to people that are dust um, people that work on in that job. Like I'm actually celebrating people from that environment because I think personally it's like a it's a fundamental, vital job. But yet people are they're just not they're not they're just demonized for that work. You know, they're not celebrated. And how about I guess that's some of the more systematic level, but how about on a personal level? So for example, you've spoken about your your projects literally running from your home. How does that kind of have an effect on you? I think um, the boundaries are obviously the biggest challenge. You know, the separation between um, my personal space and the workspace. Um, I think that's always going to be a challenge. Um, something that we're that I think we're getting. We're, I'm personally getting better at. Um, I think also there's a sense of um, maverick. Maverick. We're maverick. We're not. We're not. We're not. We're not. What's the word I'm looking for? We're not a a, a valid organization. You know, we're not like, we're not, we're not legitimate. That's the word I'm looking for. We're not a legitimate organization. There's something about basically just being slightly removed from the mainstream that people think, okay, this is not, this is not a serious project. Despite our successes, despite the PR, despite the endorsements, despite the support that we get, there's still not a, a real investment into the work we do. Um, I think for me on a personal level, I think, um, I recently discovered, well, last couple of years, four or five years, four years now, I think it is, that I'm dyslexic. So very often, because you have to, um, as a grassroots person, you have to respond to the need. Um, very often, people have not come from those environments of grassroots organization and activism, like to know detail in how to resolve the need, in a sense, as well. But sometimes you just there's there's more doing than explaining. Sometimes I'm not saying that that you know it's always right, but very often I find it quite challenging. To kind of explain what do you do? How do you do this? What do, I'm like, <laughs> come get involved. The experiential learning is such a crucial part of getting involved in grassroots organisations. And so though I'm really happy to be in a situation where a lot more people are now asking me about you know how do we do this. They don't actually get involved, you know. They're still on the sidelines, going, "Okay, this is how do you engage communities? How do you get young people on board?" Actually, if you got involved in our project, you'd get those answers. But people want shortcuts, um, so those kind of two things there, really. Yeah, I can I can see how working outside of what we've put in place as measurements would be quite difficult. But what would you say are some of the highlights or moments of pride or joy that you've had in your work so far? I mean, there are so many. And I, I feel like despite, I think it's like, again, another another nature metaphor is seasons, isn't it? You can't have, you can't have sunshine without rain. Like, and I think this is one of the things that I'm understanding more and more. Um, and, what I mean by that is that um, they sit side by side. 
you know what I mean? They sit side by side, you know, the highlights are just like phenomenal to the point where like, you know, for example, performing on stage with the mayor, like, you know, like who would imagine that? Like me from a guy that's from South London, working class, would actually get Sadiq Khan to rap about my track called Trees. Like, that's phenomenal. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, the mere rapping, do you know what I mean? Like, but not just rapping, rapping about trees. One, two, three, four. Let's plant more trees so that we can breathe. Plant more trees so that we can breathe. Let's plant more trees so that we can breathe. Let's plant more trees so that we can breathe. Make some noise for Sadiq Khan. People are understanding, like, the need for our work more and more. I think, you know, more people are coming on board and becoming more committed. Um, the team is growing. I think that's one of the things that I've been really happy about, despite how challenging it is. I'm actually, and I probably don't celebrate them enough, but I am very aware of how great they've come on board and how much energy and effort they've given um, to the project. We are growing. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? In 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 a time where every well, the majority of the world is going the other way, unless you're one of the the multi billionaires out there. But generally speaking, um, that you know the average person in society or the majority of the people in society are, are struggling. Um, but actually, what's happening for me because we've created quite a resilient um, project. I'm actually finding that I'm thriving much better as well because you know the focus on what we do. So the highlights are just, there's so many, like there's just so many. Um, but it does come at a, a challenge and a cost as well. It's really actually very interesting that you talk about growth in this, in this time and the fact that you feel that having operated in this way that maybe was outside of the mainstream has actually enabled you to be sustainable and to be resilient during this time when most people are maybe looking for alternative ways to operate now. Um, so on that vein, what advice would you maybe give to anyone starting out with this work? There's this thing called value in the marginal and value in the marginal is where the most innovation happens. And I sit in that all the time. So for me, I say whether you're corporate, whether you're, uh, no matter what your background is, get involved in grassroots organizations. That's the place where you're going to learn the most. Um, you're not going to learn the most sitting in a room in front of your PC studying statistics. I think there's a place for all of that stuff, but ultimately we're talking about people. And if we're talking about people in this tired day and age, go to places where a diverse range of people exist or where grassroots people exist or where places where people that are considered alternative exist. Um, go to those places. It's really interesting that, you know, this gentleman in the government is talking about, you know, artists um, being, you know, changing their jobs. Um, maybe I should become a politician. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? <laughs> like, I'm happy to take his job and, 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 re and reverse that trend. Do you know what I mean? Like, you know, um, but again, the places where there's, there's, a, um, there's a roughness, there's an edge. Go to those places. Grassroots projects are the places to get the most learning. I, I think that's the first thing to do, always. And how would you advise people do that? Is it just a matter of turning up? Yeah, for our project in particular, there used to be a couple of inroads, but obviously since lockdowns happened, I think the main one is really just through um, turning up on the garden on Sunday. Um, we do have, you know, um, 
come, we do connect with people like we're doing now on, on, on the internet and online. Um, and it's definitely been really useful, but I do feel again, in light of what's happening in terms of almost the eradication of the fabric of society. And I say that, let me just, I'll say that again, the eradication of the fabric of society. What I mean by that is community. What I mean by that is care. What I mean by that is art. What I mean by that is education. All these things as a result of this lockdown are kind of just being removed. That's gonna have a, a crucial impact on us as a society. So I would say that try to grab, I know it's gonna be difficult, but grab those moments in person as much as you can. It's gonna take a bit of a bit of bullshitness, you know? It's gonna require a bit of um, uncomfortability. It's gonna require a bit of um, activism. But if you, on, you as a person don't embark on that journey, I'm not sure you'll be able to be resilient in this day and age. I think it's gonna be really difficult to come out um, and be a, um, a, a fully adjusted person or just being able to kind of stem the tide of what's gonna happen right about now. So that's what I would suggest. One of the things you spoke about a little bit earlier was sort of the need for formalization at a certain point or maybe for some organization reaching that point. Our other guest actually works in funding and supporting grassroots projects. Is there anything that you would like to say to someone like them or you wish that funders and these sort of more formal organizations could know or understand better? Yeah, I, I I talk a lot about this. Like I talk a lot about, um, so because of my dyslexia, I'm dependent on other team members to get funding in. You always have to apply through funding on the basis of being able to write. And so fundamentally, like that's it, I'm out of the picture. So funders need to basically start giving money on the basis of people's track records, not on their basis of ability to write. Um, they need to start going out into communities. And actually, um, one example of that is, you know, um, our funder Choose Love, Help Refugees, um, who fund our present cohort of for Hip Hop Garden. Like, you know, uh, the, 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 you know, the kind of bureaucracy is lessened. Um, the paperwork is lessened. What they recognize is that our focus is actually doing delivery. So they put us in a position to deliver as best as we can. That's what we need funding to do, not write more, more, more reports. Or if there is a need for that, then bring in people that can do that on our behalf so we can focus on delivery. It's very difficult for grassroots organizations to, if they're doing the grassroots work, which requires a lot of emotional work, a lot of resources, a lot of, you know, it takes a lot to do that kind of stuff, it's not easy. I remember someone making a comment, it was a long time ago about me teaching um, a, a, a group of young people up in North London. And, you know, she was like, oh, you know, his DJ workshops are really easy to do. You know, all he does is press a few buttons. I said to her, all right, you have a go. She actually did the session and she was like, I can't believe how hard it is. Like, that's what I was talking about, the undervalue. People don't va value how much skill is involved in holding space in grassroots organization. And what tends to happen is that it's quite a few people that hold that space or hold that work, um, but that's not sustainable. So it's really important for funders to actually just look, you know, they keep saying to me, oh, you know, we've made this form easier. Have you actually asked me to consult 
on how to make the funding easier? No. So then you, you've not made it easier. You've still sat in your bubble and kind of said, okay, this is the way in which we're going to administrate the fund as well. So yeah, definitely, definitely need to um, um, change that whole process of writing. And even this thing about videos, you still have to be able to communicate your thoughts, go out into grassroots communities, go out into the communities and see what people are doing mm. and fund them on that basis. Yeah, I think it's quite interesting on two levels. The first is what you've spoken about quite a lot, which is the separation between those who are doing the work and those who control who's allowed to do the work. And in essence, that control comes through money, doesn't it? Yeah. Because Most money people. money gives resource and gives capacity. And the second thing I think is even a wider issue maybe in society, which is the way we measure success. So even from as early as school age, a lot of success is measured through exams, written exams and very formal one-way, one-size-fits-all uh, methods when we know that people are diverse and the way that they express themselves is diverse, which is one of the reasons that I'm so passionate about spreading different forms of communication and creativity and different mediums that you can use to communicate yourself. So I think what you've actually said there is quite powerful, a message for wider society and how we measure things and how we function in general. Yeah. When would you say that your work will no longer be needed? Um, when my work, probably when I'm, I'm become compost. <laughs> <laughs> when I when I go back in the ground, I I don't really see, um, I don't really see, um, in my lifetime, it not being needed. I don't see it, and for a lot of people that can feel quite despairing but i think it's the complete opposite because it's about steady and slow solutions there's something that needs to be complementary is the long-term stuff that takes place so the much more kind of you know consistent steady kind of stuff that happens in the background as well and that's what i do so i think what i'm talking about here specifically legacy um, um i think my work will always be needed but what i want to do and which i will do before i I get back into the compost is um, is leave that legacy, leaving resources, leaving knowledge, leaving skills, leaving an infrastructure so people can continue this work because actually what we're talking about is a huge oppressive system, you know? And so we're a garden project that are making huge impacts. I always use the, the, the metaphor again, another one is like, it feels like we're a light, we're like a lightweight fighter, a flyweight fighter in a boxing ring, fighting a heavyweight. We, we, we can get in the ring, but we're going to take some licks <laughs> in the process. Do you know what I mean? You know, like we can get in the ring, but we will take some, you know, some, 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 some damage. And I suppose for us, it's really about how do we reduce that? What's the damage limitation? What can we do to, to even up our presence in the ring society, you know, how do we kind of become better equipped to fight better? So I don't think um, my work will not be needed, um, but the legacy will be what I'm aiming to do. So our other guest this week also has a lot of experience of working with the grassroots, but kind of almost from like the outside looking in or, you know, with an almost like kind of bird's eye view. So Bo is 
Head of Development and Volunteering um, at Merton Voluntary Service Council, um, which basically is a role that means that she supports all the organizations that exist in her borough who are working for some sort of social good or charitable purpose, the third sector, like we mentioned earlier. But that could be anything from the tiny little grassroots projects to the slightly larger charities. So she sees the scale, um, she sees the kind of contrast and comparisons and, and literally works to help them seek funding or find volunteers or develop their strategies. And I, I met Bo because she helped Maple Tree Gardens a lot in the early days when it was just a grassroots project and not a formal organisation yet. And she actually helped us in that process to becoming a formal organisation. So she kind of is almost like the other side of the coin. Um, and rather than speaking from within it, she can almost like speak from from our side of it. I've worked within uh, the community for more years than I probably want to recount, but definitely in excess of 20 years. And I suppose I worked to support um, community development, um, especially that development at grassroots level. I'm a great believer of be the change you want to see in the world. So that's one of my personal mantras. Um, if I can help others to be that change as well, um, then all very well. In dispensing my role, um, uh, emerging needs of the community, so that's residents of Merton and, and wider field, um, and looking at how, how, how those needs could be met by either existing organisations or the development of new organisations or new services. So if I take COVID as an example, COVID hit has surprised many people. Um, but one of the things that we've seen come out of COVID is a highlighting of the inequalities that exist in our society. Now, for a lot of us, uh, we were quite aware of those inequalities, but for many people, um, it has come as well, a surprise, or at least they're saying it has come as a, a surprise. But, you know, COVID has also shown that we live in a very fragile economy, we live in a very fragile world where there is paper and band-aids plastered over major, major ruptures um, that I'm not sure as a society we grapple with because whilst the cogs turn, we allow them to turn and that people are outside of those cogs turning, um, is always looked at as personal deficits, not a systematic deficits. So, you know, the person who is on a zero-hour contract, that's looked at as a deficit of that individual who hasn't got either the right qualifications, who doesn't work as hard, um, isn't savvy enough to get the, the right job or career. But actually, zero-hour contracts are embedded in the way that the system works, just as inequalities. So if we don't have inequality, those who uh, are up there maybe don't feel quite so good that they haven't got others to look down upon. But that also happens within organisations. So if you look at the charitable sector, maybe uh, one of the biggest disappointments is that within the charitable sector that is, I suppose, has the image of being the good guys, those inequalities exist as well. So the inequalities where the larger charities uh, get all the accolades and a lot of the money when actually it is the small grassroots quality charities that often 
are making the biggest difference the individuals lives and they often get overlooked both in terms of funds um, in terms of accolades um, and other resources so if I look locally we have charities um, that are existing on less than 20k a year we have many many that exist on less than 10k a year micro charities they're reaching to um, communities um, is if you put it pound for pound, it, it, it's a magnitude. Um, and larger charities will come to them to get that reach into communities without recompensing them and without them giving them the acknowledgement that it's them. Why that continues to happen is because of the system allowing it to continue. So, so, so Bo, I'm going to... Um, for, for people listening for, for who maybe this is actually some quite new concepts and actually I think what you've hit on there is really crucial that even in the charity sector where maybe we perceive that as being all the good guys even there there is distinction and that's really what we actually wanted to kind of hone in on today so you mentioned grassroots organizations often doing the most work the best work what does that word grassroots actually mean and how do you actually see it in that case as being different to a charity a large ngo whatever what what, what is the distinction what does grassroots actually really mean for me grassroots means something that has arisen from the people as such from the area of need so people getting together in response to a need that they as a cohort have identified and trying to put in interventions or services to address that need. So um, an example would be local women who have been subject to domestic abuse formulating a collective to peer support mm -hmm. and then from that peer support that growing maybe into looking at addressing other aspects of domestic abuse, which might be um, awareness raising within the local community, it might be um, education and training for younger people. Um, it might be uh, practical support for people fleeing domestic abuse. Mm. So you but almost it's, feel... It's that level of um, a bottom-up approach mm. as opposed to a top-down approach where often you have policy makers um, and strategic thinkers, and I put strategic thinkers in um, inverted commas, <laughs> who decide what is best for society and communities and then devise actions, projects, programs that they believe are best. Mm, okay, so almost like the almost maybe even the system that you've just said maybe even does the oppressing being the ones that also decide what services should be rolled out as opposed to the people kind of going we're suffering from this and therefore we we are the ones who are going to come up with a maybe yeah. a solution um so Bo do you think in that case that working at grassroots level working in a grassroots way you know style whatever that means is it a matter of choice or circumstance as in do you think it's something people only do because they're sort of forced to, or do you think it has some both. innate value in it, if that makes sense? I think it's both, to be honest, Mona. Some people choose to work at grassroots level and would 
continue to work at grassroots level regardless of what other opportunities come along to them because that's where they think there is um, integrity, that's where they think there's legitimacy in what they're doing. But also, um, there's a, a lot of barriers to many people being able to get to the table where bigger, bolder decisions may be being made. So you can see where um, crumbs are fed off the table to uh, the needs of some of our most marginalised, vulnerable communities with the notion that they don't have within themselves the ability to resolve their own problems because they're not given either the respect of their experience, their intelligence, their knowledge, their problem-solving ability, etc. Et mm. And barriers are put in people's way. Quite often, uh, there's this notion that you should remain in your place within society. Mm. Um, and despite what we're led to believe that it's how much effort you put it in that will see your rewards, we don't. And we know we don't. We live in a very nepotistic, structural, structured society. And the society is structured in a way that there will be inequalities. In order for capitalism to work, you need to have the workers. So we can't all be the managers or the CEOs. Um, and that's the same with charities, unfortunately. You have, I think, those charities that are deemed to be the leaders in their field, which tend to be the big charities, that often rely on the knowledge, the engagement, the traction that the small charities and the grassroots charities have without those charities getting recognition either in terms of finance or, as I say, um, so I think you already commented actually on some of the um, challenges there and perhaps even who's to blame for them. So, I mean, would you say that the kind of the lack of recognition, the lack of finance, um, the lack of being given actual power and voice, I mean, would you say those are the main challenges to working in this way or is is there more to it you know is there other yeah i think i think have? there's i think there's systemic cha challenges uh working in a system that doesn't necessarily recognize you mm. um or allow you to blossom but i also think any challenge is exactly that it's a challenge that can be overcome and i see it see on a day-to-day -day basis people who have overcome those challenges to create something that is responsive, reactive, and enables others to grow and develop. So, you know, I could take May Garden Project as, a, 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 as an example. The work that you're doing with young unaccompanied refugee asylum seekers has probably reached more young people who fall within that category than a larger regional channel charity that can given money to do that work. It's about connecting with people and engaging with people. So, Bo, you know, I, you, you mentioned, I really, you know, again, go keep going back to how you literally said, you know, even in the charity sector, which everyone just, because we, me and Fazeo always talk about this, people think of it as just one big, you know, mass and all the do-gooding work is just the same thing. And actually there are so many levels even within that world. Um, so what do you think 
other misconceptions about this type of work. You know, I think these days uh, we certainly see a lot of people, maybe even during COVID, having become quite, you know, excited to try and help or volunteer or, you know, we've seen um, the Black Lives Matter uprising, maybe making a lot of people be like, oh, I want to almost be a bit of an activist or let me help a grassroots project. And, and it might seem exciting, it might seem, but, you know, are there misconceptions about this type of work that people don't realise, don't see? I think yes and no. So I think, you know, groundswelling of people wanting to help, people wanting to change things. I'm never, ever going to say that is a bad thing because mm -hmm. I think it's a good thing. Obviously, if they want to change things uh, to become a fascist state, then I would say it was a bad thing. But, you know, that groundswelling, that, that we've seen it over COVID of people suddenly connecting with their neighbours and, you know, going shopping for the old woman who lives at 21, who six months ago, they didn't even recognize lived there. That, that's fantastic. Taking that to the next level where you're organizing maybe as a cohort of a few people who are doing that, so that you make sure that you cover everyone in a, I don't know, two, two, two street radius who may be vulnerable. Brilliant. But as you groundswell and as you start to get bigger, some of the things that come into play that might halt um, development is the bureaucracy that then you need to go, you sometimes need to go with that. So once it goes off at of that individual level of myself at number three cooking for or shopping for uh, Mrs. Smith at number seven, and it becomes myself gathering information about a whole group of people and doing shopping for them with a whole group of other shoppers, volunteer shoppers, you need to ensure that what's happening safe, safe for the people who are volunteering to do it, and safe for the people who are the recipients. And that comes with some bureaucracy, unfortunately. Mm. Um, and often the bureaucracy in itself, so the need for policies, the need for procedures, um, can be the barrier to people then wanting to continue to be involved because that's not what they got in it for. They didn't get in it to tick uh, boxes. Some of that form filling needs to happen. We need to safeguard. We need to make sure if people are handing over money volunteers to do their shopping, that that money is not being abused, that that position isn't being abused. But for many people, though, though, those steps in between are what will turn them away because it, it, it goes from being very responsive to being responsive with lots of caveats. So in that case, um, Bo, I mean, you know, you literally work in a capacity where you actually try and help the people that are setting up these things. You try and give them mm -hmm. advice, capacity, support, funding, etc. What would you, advice would you give um, to anybody listening who might be thinking, I want to start something up or I want to get involved in something that's been started up around me to maybe pr at least prepare for some of the things you've just said or to, you know, even better, like overcome them? Have passion, keep your passion. And, always, and try to always keep that passion, even when it looks like um, to get to your end result is going to be climbing a mountain and more. Try to keep that passion alive. In terms of steps to go through, it depends what you want to do. But I would always say, look to see what's going on already. Because one of the things that quite often happens is that people, because there's a desire to have make a difference yourself, um, you don't look to see what's already there. And then you get lots of small organisations trying to do the same thing with minimal resources and minimal funding. And you're, you're, you're sort of 
duplicating effort, but also dissipating resources. So look to see what's going on already. See if you can find like-minded people who have the same passion and drive as yourself to change whatever it is you see needs changing. And then seek out somebody like me who maybe I'll give you some steer regards <laughs> to funding uh, policies, procedures. But, you know, grow embryolically. Don't try to start from, go from zero to one million pounds in one week. Um, grow embryolically and keep the community or communities that you seek to support with you along that journey. So quite often it goes from being a grassroots community-led project or activity that then gets taken over in the community that started with the bottom. And that's where you lose that space and engagement. Mm. So Bo, um, as someone who's seen tons of these projects develop, grow, potentially, you know, maybe go off course, maybe not, um, what are some highlights or moments of kind of pride or joy in your work um, that might also therefore inspire people listening, um, especially when we do also raise a lot of sometimes, you know, challenges and when we talk about these things? Those, the, the, the pride, the joy in, is seeing where it works. So for example, uh, probably about eight years ago, a group, uh, three young ex-offenders came to see me because they wanted an organisation to support young people, divert them away from going down the pathway that they themselves had gone down. I look at those young men today who are you know, all now reaching 30, if not just over 30. They have a viable uh, organisation that is recognised locally and sub-regionally for the work that it with young people that, connect, that can connect with young people in a way that many other organisations can't because they're talking from a position of lived experience as opposed to a position of theoretical experience. Um, and that fills me with pride because this was a group of three young men who had knocked on several doors before they got to my door and had been turned away because people didn't see that there was anything worth investing the time in. And it's not even about investing money, it's about investing time. And today they're making differences to other younger people in lives that are positive. And, you know, that's where my pride and joy comes. So I, you know, I talk to the talk when I'm talking to them, I say it's like, you know, I have an additional three sons. Sometimes, <laughs> like with my own sons, you want to uh, give them a metaphoric clip around the ear um, <laughs> but you know seeing that growth seeing their development seeing how they have been able to now look and the things that four years ago you were having to do for them or provide them with a template they're now able to do themselves seeing how they are looking and horizon scanning and saying actually you know this looks to be an emerging need for the demographic that we're working with and there's you know I could give you dozens of examples. I can really say you know um, like you've done the same for us um, and um, that's how I know you certainly is that um, you offered that same support and belief um, in May Project Gardens kind of around five years ago or five six years ago when it was still a 
completely unincorporated, you know, organic, totally, you know, voluntary kind of entity. It was very much your push that caused us to kind of say, you know what, we're going to try and make this a bit more official, you know, get some money, et cetera, et cetera. So I I'm, can sit here as a kind of, I hope, successful case study and say... Um, <laughs> you always be a successful case study. And, 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 you know, it's not always right for mm. uh, an organisation, an association to be taken to that next level. Sometimes mm. saying that, that unincorporated, unconstituted, very, very grassroots level where people just come together Yes. Do something and then dissipate, come together, do something. That that's the right thing to, to do. But for someone such as me project, you yourself saw that there was so much more you could do if you had the resources. Mm. And the resources aren't just about financial resources, that's human resources. That's also resources that allow other people to recognize what you're doing. So, you know, one of the turning points for yourselves was getting that recognition from the GLA by winning the Mayor of London Award mm. because then it put you on the sub-regional and the regional map. Actually, there's this organisation out over here doing this and we didn't know about it. So let us as um, strategic partners tap into some of what they're doing. And that's where you see things working well, where people who have maybe... Um, the, the statutory partners who have the task, the legal objectives to fulfill certain things, actually look back down towards the grassroots to say, and where are the partners? Who are the partners who can help us deliver this? As opposed to where are the experts, we can deliver ever, everything. Because we've seen it doesn't work. Mm. So Bo, um, as someone out there like, championing all these causes, giving so many organizations advice and, and support um, like for people that might be drawing on your services already or thinking to draw upon your services, anything that you wish they knew about your work? I mean, anything that maybe misconceptions they have about you and what you're capable of doing or perhaps just anything that they could do to make your life easier, for example? I suppose the biggest misconception is that I have money to give out. I don't. Mm. I can point them in the direction of people who do have money to give, them, give out and I can help them try to get that inward investment into their organisation. But me personally, I don't have money to give out. When I do have money to give out, um, I will certainly, if I ever win the lottery, which is unlikely because I've never played it, but you know, I would certainly like to give to grassroots organisations where I see that they're making a real difference people's lives so no i don't have money yes i have advice do i have unlimited time um i will always invest time into people who uh want my time but obviously i you know i'm one person i have a team of well the equivalent of one other person so there's a limit to how much time one can invest but i can also point you into the direction direction of others who have um, the same skills and abilities as myself. Also, partnering with other organisations. Because as I said quite often, we're working our silos and don't realise that there may be five organisations in a very small geographical area all trying to do the same thing. Mm. Sometimes working together makes, it amplifies that voice mm -hmm. and amplifies the work that you're doing. And I think 
I suppose one of the biggest things that I can offer organisations is being that amplify, amplification of voice. So amplifying the needs of the communities that they see, see to serve, or the activities that they seek to do, or the campaigns that they seek to address to people up the food chain. So to you know the local authority, to the um, regional government, and if need be, to the national government. So um, everyone watch this space for the both at a Hunzi fund when it does come. Um, <sighs> and uh, if you're not going to say it, Bo, I'm definitely going to say it. You don't have unlimited time. <laughs> and I think people should know that. Um, and then I guess that kind of maybe brings me quite nicely on to my, 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 my last question, um, which is when, if at all, will your work no longer be needed, do you think? Um, my personal work, mm -hmm. don't think I'm anything unique, so any time I could step out of the, the loop <laughs> and do something else. Um, this type of work, communities responding to the needs of communities, um, I would hope that that will always be needed because I'd hope that people would always be responsive to need. Um, what I also hope is that we start to look at things differently, so that grassroots is given the resources and acknowledgement that it deserves, because to my mind, the people on the ground are the people who are making the greatest difference. So if you look at, I don't know, food insecurity, there were people on the ground who were responding to food poverty within our communities far, 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 far sooner than either local or national government or regional government responded something that's come online afterwards, but it's the people on the ground who are the barometer mm. of social need um, that I think we should applaud um, and listen to a bit more. And that need, I don't think it's going to go away unless the, the fabric of society changes. Wow, what another set of great interviewees. We are good at picking them, aren't we? <laughs> If we must say so ourselves. Um, I think they summed up what the grassroots is really well, better than we, we probably ever could. And from the different sides, like we said in the intros, I think it was nice to have that contrast. Definitely. And again, I feel like um, when you know your interviewees quite well, it's just really interesting to still hear people speak about their work, about their lives, about their craft in such a intentional way. It kind of gives you a different perspective on even the people you thought you knew, <laughs> so, so to speak. And you realize how much people need that space to maybe just get to like talk about it. And actually um, one of the comments I, we had on, on this pod, podcast actually um, was that it's nice to just hear the guests speak and for them not to almost be like interrupted loads, but it to really give that space. No, yeah, I think I would definitely agree. And I think especially when you're working at the grassroots and there's so much going on and it's so intrinsically linked to who you are, um, you don't often get that chance to pause and reflect maybe. So I definitely think having that space is it brings out things even for themselves maybe. And I felt like both of them kind of touched on this idea of almost like an intrinsic knowledge. You know, like Bo mentioned that the inequalities of COVID might have shocked a lot of people. Some of us knew all along, you know, equally Ian kind of spoke about, you know, where people are now coming to us because we seem to have had this innate resilience through COVID because of the ways we've been working for so long. So there was this idea of 
the knowledge you gather when your ears are literally maybe close to the ground mm. in, in a way um yeah the idea that of becoming more powerful more resilient during covid is really interesting because it's the opposite of what most people have had and i guess when you are operating outside of the traditional systems when those systems crash it doesn't necessarily it's not necessarily a bad thing for you so i definitely think there was power in that idea and I guess in terms of things that, you know, people might kind of take away, you know, I feel that I feel like both Ian and Bo kind of said, and we've said this before, don't keep recreating the wheel. You know, if you have a passion to get stuck in to do something good, maybe do you just have a little look around you first? Like, why are you setting up a charity from scratch if there is no need for that? If eventually the need develops, like Ian said, then fine. But just just test the grounds first and actually there's probably a lot of stuff out there that you could go and add capacity to mm. rather than take capacity away mm. from. Yeah, and um, the idea of collaboration where you don't see others as necessary competition or someone that you should set up a rival organisation. You see it as someone to collaborate with and that collaboration can have benefits for both parties. I think that's quite a unique idea that that does exist at the grassroots but gets lost somewhere. Mm-hmm. Once you come, the higher you or the further you get away from the grassroots. Um, So, yeah, it was nice to hear um, them both speak about the idea of working together, but not necessarily as um, rivals, but as... As allies, I yeah, guess. Yeah, as allies, yes, exactly. And if you want to know what an ally is, you can listen to our last episode. Um, And I guess another thing to take away from today is actually just that probably you are more resource rich than you think you are. So, you know, Ian literally said, I set up this project from my home. Now, obviously not everybody has to go do that, but, you know, actually a lot of projects grow from somebody's living room or, you know, actually you don't necessarily need, you know, I I used to kind of work um, in, a, in a capacity where I used to go and help certain new organizations grow and develop. And actually sometimes trying to say to people like don't overthink it like you don't from the get-go need to have every policy in place every structure Mm. every system you don't need an office from day one Mm. like make use of what you have and be quite inventive with that Mm. I actually um liked one of the things that Bo said was that some organizations work towards getting formalized and they start organic but some never need to be formalized Mm. and that was quite an interesting Mm. idea to me because obviously you even when working at the grassroots you think oh well eventually you want to be this but actually the idea that maybe a group of neighbors see that their local area is covered in litter they create a grassroots group to go and pick up that litter and it just always remains on that level where you're looking out for your community is nice Mm. it doesn't always have to reach where litter pickers limited you know (laughs) so the idea that you can just act and better your surroundings in an informal way um yeah it's quite freeing in a way not everything has to always lead to some kind of money-making venture we can just do things yeah for their innate value yeah and it kind of we asked both of them do you think working in a grassroots way is a choice or purely out of necessity and I guess they both said in a way it's a bit of both so they're kind of saying maybe even if you were given all the money in the world maybe you'd remain at that level because Mm. it has some Mm. genuine innate value in it Mm. yeah although I think Ian did identify some of the struggles that start to come when you do some of the expectations that maybe are outside of how you would wish to work once you do get to that level which I think we spoke about a little is a reflection of wider society and how it tries to fit people in boxes and tries to fit everything into a certain way of doing things, isn't it? 
So I guess for anyone listening who, you know, has been inspired or mobilised, I guess the things to take away um, are to, you know, collaboration, um, do your research, like see what's around you, what can you add capacity to rather than always thinking you have to, again, set something up straight away yourself um, and making yourself almost the centre of something rather than the cause the centre of something. Um, diversity is a sort of sign of you know as a not as a sign of resilience but an actual um, I don't know cause of resilience if you can if you can call it that Um, and being a bit maverick being a bit maverick (laughs) yeah absolutely I think that's a nice one to leave on be be maverick Um, be people don't ask what is it? Ask forgiveness, not permission. permission. Yeah, that's a, that's a phrase I learned from you and I've stuck it with me ever since. <laughs> oh, well, it's good to know. Um, so as as always, everybody, if, if you've enjoyed um, this podcast, please do subscribe, follow, rate, review if you can. Send us any comments. We are um, untelevised underscore TV on social media um, or you can email us at talk to untelevised at gmail.com and the the two is the number two um we really would would love your feedback yeah and any guest or subject suggestions as well we we would love to have um see you next time see you next time (laughs) (laughs) call me a dreamer idealistic believer with my head in a cloud I don't want to come down from my feet or planning on start the ground for my ground my ground is a cloud